Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Returning to Dr. Doctor, we have the effervescent Dr. Francie Broghammer, a psychiatrist who will help us understand the importance of play and playing in our lives. Andrew, as you just told me offline, this is kind of an off-the-wall topic, but what makes it so important for our listeners? Well, you know, Tom, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, right? And so it's, it's very important to find balance in, in medicine. We were kind of reflecting on this just a little bit off air. Uh, it's easy to struggle with play when, when you spend so much time working and focusing on being proficient at work. But play is very important, not only in development, but even throughout adult life. Really? Are we allowed to play as adults? I didn't think we were allowed to. <laughs> I, I think you should, and I'm not the only one. I, I took the liberty of pulling up a couple of quotes from people smarter than me. And uh, one of my favorite people, uh, G.K. Chesterton, he had a quote where he said, Earth is a task garden and heaven is a playground. Aww. And so it, it really that, that kind of paints the picture of, yeah, you know, it, it really is important to not not indulge as a pure luxury, but as a part of human existence and living that is frequently neglected when you're adulting. And to take along with that, Chesterton, he has another place where he's, he defined play as simply doing what you like. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. That's probably a good definition. You know, so often, uh, at least, you know, I, I think of my childhood and play was reserved for after your, your chores are done and after yes. school is done. And it's kind of the reward, the you time, which uh, to some extent is right, but I think it's it's something that is frequently neglected. You know, and talking to other adults, frequently people will tell me, you know, the me time is after I get my kids to sleep and you get to watch television for an hour. That's not quite play. I don't think play is meant to be uh, a passive activity, you know, watching television. I, I'm not sure that would count. We'd have to ask Dr. Broghammer here. Right. And when you think about it as me time, really, you lose yourself in play. So you're not even thinking about the me anymore. And I, I am horrible at play. So I am looking for help from Francie in this episode. So <laughs> well, other I, quotes beside the inimitable G.K. Chesterton. Yeah. You know, I an, another philosopher that I really like, uh, Mr. Fred Rogers, that most of us uh, yes, got to know and grew up with. Play is often talked about as if it were a relief from serious learning. But for children, play is serious learning. And really, it's the work of childhood. Ooh, play is the work of childhood. Brilliant. That needs to be on the bumper sticker or a coffee mug. And so it's it's something that, uh, you know, even as we were kind of preparing for the show, I was reflecting on my own kids and I'm like, gee whiz, do I do I leave them enough time to play? I sure think I do. But uh, or at least they find time, you know. But um, an, another quote that really I thought was kind of interesting was uh, about Plato. Or no, I'm sorry, from Plato, not about Plato. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, do not keep children to their studies by compulsion, by compulsion, but by play. And so you let them play to learn. And it's a legitimate form of growing in knowledge and virtue, hopefully. See, and one of my daughters was tuned into that way before my wife and me, because I remember when one of my daughters was little, she came up to my wife and said, mom, why can't school always be fun? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's she, true. She was looking for Play-Doh. Well, and you know, it's so, it's so innocent, but that's also the truth because that's really how, how you learn the best is when it's something that you enjoy and you're enthralled by. Uh, yes. And in fact, this sounds suspiciously like something we've talked about in a lot of episodes with Kevin Majors, and that is when we're in a state of flow, when we lose track of time and the moment in ourselves. So that's the real trick. And uh, we'll see if, if uh, Francie can enlighten us on that. But can we have flow both at work and at play, flowing all the uh, time? I bet we can, but we'll let her answer that because it's such a, a fun and rewarding topic. But I just want to know, okay, well, in fact, my son, just before recording this, he was in the kitchen doing some schoolwork. Well, what's your next episode on, Dad? I said, on play. And he just looked at me. 
<laughs> I said, how do adults play, Dad? <laughs> I'm going to find out, I told him. <laughs> that is so funny. Well, I mean, if you think about it, too, our culture has kind of become more serious in a way. Can can people take a joke in the same way they, they could before or even enjoy making good-hearted you know, humor and lightheartedness? I think this pandemic especially has really cast a lot of I don't know, grayness and whether Gray, it be yes. depression or anxiety or stress or sullenness, but I play should brighten up the day. And Tom, where, where I know you prepared a little bit about the etymology of play. Where do we take that word from? It comes from a Middle English word and an Old English word, which means to move lightly and quickly or to occupy or busy oneself or amuse oneself. Uh, or engage in active exercise. It has all those things, but it always seems to involve movement, which would suggest you were right when you said that play is not something passive, like watching television. Yeah. And I wonder how that kind of fits in also with the video games, which unfortunately, I I say unfortunately, but frequently when I'm, I'm getting to see children in the clinic, I'll ask them, you know, what's your favorite subject, your favorite color? What do you do for fun? And, and a large number of the kids, unfortunately for fun, they're like, well, I like to play video games. I play this one. I play that one. I play that one. I'm like, Hmm, no basketball or tag or anything like that. And so does that count as play? That's one of my questions. I'm not sure that it would be the same thing as if you were shooting hoops with a friend, you know? Right. And uh, how often can play be something alone versus with other people? Um, and, and what's the relationship between fun and play? Uh, so, gosh, you're, you're prolonging my show prep. You're giving me so many more good ideas for <laughs> questions here, Andrew. So let's give uh, Francie some more time by delving into our medical trivia question of the day. And this one, the category, caloric input and output in children's sports. So play is important in the life of a child. I think we agree. Dutiful parents often ferry their children from activity to activity. And over 80% of the time at these sports activities, parents brought an after game snack for the kids. We're all familiar with that probably if we've had kids. So in a 2020 study reported in the American Journal of Health Behavior, did those post game snacks contain more or less calories than the children were observed to burn during the activity. You got oh, a 50-50 shot here. You like that's that, a Andrew? Good, that's a good question. It's an angle that you would never even think of. But somebody did. And you'll have to wait till the end of the show to find out the answer here on Dr. Doctor after we talk about play with Dr. Francie Brogammer. Welcome to our interview with Francie Brogammer talking about play today. Francie You know, she's a graduate of Notre Dame. She then went to UC Irvine for med school and her residency in psychiatry. She's got academic and clinical interests that include medical ethics, education, spirituality, human flourishing. She's now living in Minnesota. Yes, frigid Minnesota with her husband and their three children, ages seven, one and newborn. I believe the seven year old has gotten to ride or drive his first snowmobile since we last recorded with her. Yes, yes, she's nodding. Uh, Yep. Welcome back to the Midwest. Francie, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thanks for having me. This is one of my favorite things to do. So really looking forward to this. I think it'll be fun. So besides (laughs) riding a snowmobile on snow covered fields in Minnesota, what do we mean by play? Oh, my gosh. We could mean a lot of different things, but I think we have to to take a step back and actually start by defining play because play can take a lot of different forms depending on the person, place, circumstance, et cetera. But play at its core is something that has to be done for its own sake an end in and of itself, right? If your PE teacher says, today we're doing basketball, go out there and do basketball and shoot X number of shots and I will give you a grade at the end. There might be some enjoyable pieces to that, but fundamentally it's very different than you and your friends just picking up a ball and saying, let's get out there and see what happens, right? So done for its own sake and in and of itself. And then you'll find closely related to this, that when you're engaging in play with this end in and of itself philosophy, you tend to lose sense of self and time, right? Get lost in the activity. Time flies when you're having fun, if you will. So those, to me, are the two most important components of play. And then there's other things that are just a half step off of that that come up in the literature, things like it has to be voluntarily. Sure, 
um, there is an improvisational component to it, right? When you're there, you're going to modify how you're you're engaging with it. It's something that you want to do. It's inherently attractive. So, so if it's voluntary, are we being bad parents if we tell our child, please go outside and play? No, because what you're actually telling them is go outside and do something active. <laughs> Right, (laughs) And that's okay. And on a a number of different levels, I support that. But whether or not they will play while being active is those are two kind of different things, right? It depends what that activity looks like. Because if you say go outside and just get some exercise in and they run around the block three times and they hate it, but they got their exercise in, that's very different than going to the end of the cul-de-sac, picking up a basketball with some kids and seeing what happens, right? Francie, what's the difference between play and fun? So fun, <laughs> you, you're turning me into a philosopher without me knowing it. I think. Um, so I would argue that fun is a byproduct of play. Um, and you can have fun that is not related to play. For example, you could be watching a movie that's pretty enjoyable and you could say that was really fun, right? But you weren't necessarily playing while it was happening. So fun and play can be separate of each other, but when you are playing and when you are playing well, it's something that you get lost in. It becomes inherently enjoyable and therefore fun becomes a byproduct of the play. In your definition of the components of play, it sounds suspiciously like something our our frequent guest Kevin Majors has talked about, and that's flow. Mm-hmm. What is the relationship between play and flow? And can they can flow happen at play as well as at work? Yes. And yes. So flow, this idea of, has it already been fleshed out for everybody? It was me high, cheeks at me high, right? Yes. Came up with this, the, the idea of getting lost in activity. It's being done for its own sake. You're playing music and all of a sudden you're lost in the song or you're running a marathon. You get that runner's high and all of a sudden you're four miles ahead of where you were before. Right. So this is something. You could that- also be building something as a carpenter or operating as a surgeon uh, and still have that happen. So it doesn't. Exactly. Ha- Exactly. And so what you're getting at is a a really important piece here. So I'm going to back up and say that flow can happen when you are playing, right? If you're doing something you enjoy, you're doing it well, you're getting lost in the activity. Flow can, can come from that. But what you're getting at is something more important here. And that is that work and play are not diametrically opposed. You can play while you are at work. And I would argue that actually when you do that, that is what's more likely to lead to a state of flow because you're finding enjoyment, inherent enjoyment in the activity you're engaging in. So making work a game is how we can make work like play and get into flow. A game, yeah, that's one way to think about it. It doesn't always have to be, you know, how many points or, or who wins, who loses, but finding right. ways no, how to can I do this better myself? Right, exactly. Sounds okay, like a so trivia question here. <laughs> on whose desk, on what famous doctor's desk did it have the phrase, there's no fun like work? That that was Dr. Charles Mayo, one of the two Mayo brothers at Mayo Clinic. There's no fun like work. Well, you're a Mayo graduate, so I would expect you to know that. <laughs> I should know <laughs> but that. But that's great. But that's really great. And that's a really healthy philosophy and way to go through your career, right? If you're able to see the tasks in front of you, not only as a, as a gift, a privilege, right? An ability to help other people, but also an element of fun, right? Like Andrew was saying, Mary Poppins, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. <laughs> if you can bring these things to the table, recognizing there's privilege in what you're doing and there's fun and you can harness those, not only are you going to have a longer, healthier, happier career, but guess what? Your patients are going to have much better outcomes as a result. Because when you're in a state of having fun, entering flow, you're more creative, you're more dynamic, you have more kind of life and gusto to you than you would otherwise, and you actually have much better outcomes. And your career longevity is going to be much longer as well. Can can you, I guess, choose when to bring these things together? I mean, one, one of the things that people probably are asking is, how do I know if I'm doing this for its own sake? I have to show up to work, so that's why I did this morning. But how do you, how do you get into that state where it just flows naturally? And this is where I realize we have an audience of likely type A individuals who, who like to do things well and know that they can check the box and say, yes, I did it for its own sake. <laughs> yeah. did, I, did I do yes. it well enough? Do I get an A at doing it for yes. its own sake? Does that count? <laughs> so this is a hard question to answer, especially in modern society, because everything's measured and recorded and you can look back on it and we're in this constant state of comparison. But the way to answer that simply is, is if you were in a vacuum 
And it didn't matter if you came in first, second, or third, and it didn't matter if it was done by a certain time or in a certain way, would you still choose to do this or choose to do this in the same way? So trying to remove all external pressures and kind of boundaries that form how you engage with that activity, um, if you would still do it in that instance, is the best way to say, is this an end in and of itself? But chances are, if you're sitting here saying, am I doing this for its own sake? You're probably (laughs) knocking on the doorstep (laughs) of the fact that you're not. (laughs) But it's a good question to ask nonetheless. So what's the purpose of play? Is it an essential part of being a human person? It absolutely is. We were created to be playful in so many ways. And I'm going to I'm going to get slightly X-rated with you here. Think about how our society exists, right? We procreate. Sex in and of itself is a very, very playful act, especially when done correctly in the, in the right environment, the right, the right tone, if you will. Um, so yes, we were created for play. In, in fact, our entire population depends on the fact, the fact that we play and that we play well. And then when you look at child rearing, raising I have a seven-year-old son, as Tom mentioned right now, and it's constantly, will you come play with me? Will you come play with me? Will you come play with me? Right? It's a very important fundamental piece of development, not only um, from kind of a you're seven years old and this is what you're supposed to do, you're supposed to play, but you realize that in play when you're younger, we're driven to that for a very specific reason. There's emotional intelligence that comes from that. There's social learning, reciprocities, um, as well as some some hard and fast cognitive skills, right? Learning how to throw a ball, things like that. And how about your field of mental health? I mean, do people who play less have more mental health problems? Yes, I hesitate. There, there's a couple different conflating factors in there. But what I will say is one of my favorite studies that's actually been repeated many times now within the field of mental health is that for mild to moderate depression, if you can get about 30 to 50 minutes of cardio exercise in four to five days a week, that's just as good as an anti, uh, of an antidepressant as the leading SSRI, right? And that's not a reason to not take your medications, et cetera, et cetera. That's a whole different conversation we actually had last time. But <laughs> the, the reality is, is that we know that the more that we get out and we move our bodies and that we use our brains in this very specific kind of free flowing way, the healthier, healthier we are from a mental health perspective. Are, are kids playing less nowadays or does it just seem like that where, you know, you, you'll occasionally see things in the headlines about you know, or I guess maybe maybe just as a, a parent, uh, I'm worried sometimes if my kids are outside and someone sees them, they're unsupervised, uh, CPS is going to be called. Um, and so I think a lot of people have these ultra-structured um, days and lives, especially for children, but definitely for mm-hmm. us too. Is, is play changing? Are we not doing enough of it? So we're doing it differently. Like you said, it's not that we're playing less, we're playing in more structured way. And that's an okay, that's a healthy thing to have because- Part of learning the the emotional components that come with play and the social reciprocity, all of that is learning how to play within rules, right? And and how to exist in a certain environment and structure. But that has to be balanced with this creativity, right? The the free flow. What are we going to do now? What are we going to do when we have free time? Those two things have to coexist. And what we've seen, we're kind of knocking on the doorstep here of some, some of the work that Charles Murray and Robert Putnam have done. Um, where you're seeing this kind of divide between the haves and the have-nots, if you will. Individuals of higher socioeconomic statuses or higher educational levels tend to have their kids in more structured activities because that's how you build your resume and that's how you get into to college and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so, and then on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have individuals from lower, lower socioeconomic statuses whose parents may be single family households working two, three, four jobs, and maybe all they have access to is unstructured play. And you see very, very different outcomes in these settings. The answer is kind of baby's bear, baby bear's porridge. You know, the best is, is a little bit of both, right? You need that unstructured play, but too much yes. of it unsupervised can be a bad thing. Um, too much structured play. Your friend is here. You have 45 minutes. Now have fun. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't always lead to the most spontaneous creative individuals either. So we're seeing that, that definite divide in how kids are spending their time. And it, it looks very different than it did 56 so years. So Francie, here's a right. practical question in my life right now. Um, what if we have kids who have been so structured that they're not sure what to do if they have friends come over the house? Where do you start with that? You get comfortable being uncomfortable, 
right? Because your kids are good. I, I've had this. Uh, a neighbor kid came over the other day and they, he, he walked right up to me and he goes, well, what are we going to do? And I go, I don't know. There's your friend. Why don't you guys go figure it out? <laughs> but then I found myself sitting in the kitchen feeling pressured. Like, oh gosh, I have to come up with something fun for them to do so he can go home and report that he had fun. No, 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 no. Right? <laughs> I had to sit there and say, he might go home and say, Francie's house is boring, but that's okay. Right? <laughs> it's not my job to give fun to the kids. In fact, it's my job to give them the space to be creative and to have that innovation together, which is why I would actually argue, and this is a pet peeve of mine, video games are a, a unique niche when it comes to play. But kids now are actually spending much less time together than they ever did um, in the past for a number of different reasons. But that's why I think it's really important that when our kids are together and they're having this, you know, I'm over at a friend's house for the afternoon. If we can keep screens out of that equation and, and allow more organic, intentional physical play to take place, that often is filling the, the void of a type of play that isn't there as much as it was a couple decades ago. You know, Francie, several of the examples, maybe all of them have been play in groups. Can you play mm -hmm. as an individual? Absolutely. And that's that's the flow piece that we were talking about earlier, right? Okay. It's hard to, it's hard to flow as a group. If you can, it's really great. It's very rare. Um, but yeah, so how are you challenging yourself? Are you getting the runners high? Are you getting lost in the music as you're playing it? Or are you in the middle of a surgery and you're just like, there's no better place on earth, right? Um, you can absolutely do this individually or in a group. And I would argue that both are important right? Because we need to know what to do when we're with others and when we have time to ourselves. Okay. So what's some of the neuroscience of, of play? What's going on in our brains when we're playing? Oh, great question. This is so cool. So uh, <laughs> BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, is a chemical released in your brain that essentially says to your brain, grow, wire in all of the important ways. And we know that this chemical is released when you're playing in two very important regions in your brain, especially. One is the amygdala, which is responsible for memory and emotion, especially fear. And then the other is the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And that's the part of your brain that says, is this safe or is this not safe? Right. So again, you're seeing how play at its core serves a very important evolutionary role. It's teaching us how to exist safely within the environment around us. Um, but what's interesting is we have a drive for play that's much greater at certain times in our lives. Early childhood and adolescence, you wanna get out there, you wanna play all the time, right? I remember thinking when I was 12, year old, 12 years old, how come adults never wanna play board games? They're so fun. <laughs> adults are so boring. Yes, how come adults are. never wanna get in the pool with me? It's so fun. <laughs> and then you find yourself as an adult on the flip side going, Oh gosh, the pool looks kind of cold. I don't know if I want to get in or another game of Monopoly. No, <laughs> right? So we have a very different drive for these activities at different times in our life. And what we know is that when your play drive is highest, childhood and adolescence, those are the times that your brain actually needs to be wiring intentionally the most. That's when we're learning what is safe, what is not, how are we going to exist within our environment? And your body creates a play drive, releases BDNF, so that you can have these very important exposures during these prime developmental periods. And Francie, what's going to happen to a kid who doesn't get to play enough? What 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 are we going to see on the, the flip side or what benefit, I guess? You know, uh, one of the things you had talked about, you gave a talk uh, at the CMA conference was kind of emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. You know, is that is that something that we see in studies correlated very well with play? We do. And this is a bit of a, a morose... Um, study to give you. I'm not saying if your children don't play or don't play enough, they will end up in jail, but that is the study that I'm going to quote here. Okay. <laughs> so note that that's not what, not specifically what I'm saying about your child, if your child is not playing enough, but we have studies showing that individuals who had the greatest play deficits, meaning say their body wanted, we're going to say 70 units of play through their adolescent years, and they maybe got 30 units. This is not how play is measured, by the way. But they're <laughs> at a play deficit of 40 units, right? And individuals who have certain levels of play deficits are actually much more likely to be involved in the criminal justice system, much more likely to be incarcerated and be involved in violent crimes. 
And that come, points back to that emotional learning, social emotional learning that you just brought up, Andrew, because that's how we learn to exist in a civilized way with one another in society. And when you don't have that, there are certain fundamental needs that are not met. And for whether it's because you never learned that it wasn't appropriate or because you're not quite sure how to contend with the uncomfortable emotions you have as a result of your play deficit and lack of social emotional learning, you're more likely to participate in actions that are seen as not totally kosher in common society. Before we go to the break, I'd like to cover with you what are some great examples, either from the Bible or the lives of the saints, of play? Oh, I'll, I'll give you my favorite one, mostly because it's been on my heart and mind a whole lot lately. And this might not be the one that comes to mind often for most people, but I'm going to bring up Martha and Mary ah. because <laughs> um, there's especially for all the type A individuals, the doctor types, the student types that are listening right now, there's always something else that can be done, Amen. right? There is always something more to be done. I have my to-do list right here. And <laughs> What this parable shows us is that it's really important to say the dishes can wait, that to-do list can wait, and I need to be present. And you, it's really hard to play, to have a state of flow unless you're present and engaged in the moment. And so I often think of that, that I can't truly show up and play and honestly have fun when I'm over there cleaning the dishes and doing my to-do list per se, right? Because you have to be in a state where you're willing to step back and say, I'm going to give myself over, and this is going to be an end in and of itself. And Francie, before before we take our break, what is the opposite of play? Is it work? <laughs> no, Tom, were you listening? I was. I was trying to set you up a softball, you know, a volleyball lob. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Yeah, so I would argue that play and work go hand in hand, oftentimes for work to be done well. They have to go hand in hand. But the So the opposite of play is not work. But the absence of play can be understood as depression. And in all of my work through mental health, I can give you all these statistics and all these DSM criteria about major depressive disorder, et cetera. But at a fundamental level, depression can be understood as the body's response to a toxic environment, an environment that is not conducive to the body and the mind and the soul flourishing. And we know that play was something given to us by God for very specific reasons. And when we deprive ourselves of that, our bodies and our minds reach out and say, I'm sick, I'm not doing well. And so if you're in an environment that doesn't have enough play, you can, it can very readily become toxic and therefore lead to a state of depression. And that's a great place to leave it before the second half of this interview on Play with Francie Brogammer here on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking to Dr. Francie Broghammer about something fun, uh, play, and the importance <laughs> of play. And so, Francie, whenever I think of play, we always think of little kids, but we've been talking about how it's important to do when we're grown-ups as well. Um, what does play look like, and how does it look different at different stages of life? Absolutely. I think play is easiest to come by when you're young because you have this really high play drive. Um, but it's actually incredibly important to still cultivate when you're older, especially when your play drive comes down a little bit. What that looks like is going to vary from individual to individual, but I will challenge you to conceptualize it in two different buckets, the physical bucket and then the cognitive bucket, right? Because play might mean going out and doing pickup soccer with your grandson, or it might mean pulling out the chessboard and saying, I haven't played this since I was 12 years old. How do we do this again? And both are important because they both they both engage you in very different ways. And so I think um, Tom was just mentioning during the break, guys, we had a chance to chat and Andrew's like, oh, it's easy for me to play. I have a million kids running around and they're young, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and Tom's like, I haven't been crawling on the floor doing Legos in, in a couple of years here. So um, <laughs> creating an environment very intentionally that is conducive to play. That might mean inviting your niece or nephew over who have a couple young kids and saying, bring the chaos into our house or we'll come to you and spending time with young kids. Because the reality is, is young kids, you can't help but play when they're there because they will pull on your coattails until you do, for better <laughs> or worse, right? Um, so that's an oftentimes a good little bit of kindling, if you will, to get the fire started, is to get, get around young kids so they harass you so you play. But beyond that, Anytime you have a goal to play more, I find that if you have a partner or a close friend, you share this with them. 
had a conversation with my husband last week of, okay, we're watching a lot of TV and just zoning out at night when everything's done. How can we be more intentional and have a little bit more fun and, and spend a little bit more time together? And neither of us had ever played Rummy Cube, but we we read about it and we went and picked it up at Target. And it's been great fun. We were terrible. If you could have seen the first couple of games, absolutely terrible. But we're picking What's up it called? Cube. Rummy Cube. It's uh, like gin. It's like gin rummy or, or gin. I, you want to get? I runs. can probably endorse this game. It it is popular, <laughs> and uh, I've heard there's actually an expanded version where you can have more people play, which is very. Oh, you would enjoy wow. it, Tom. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but I would highly recommend. Anytime there's something new, you're like, I don't know what that would be like. Being willing to give it a shot, putting yourself out there. Someone recommended on this podcast, I should buy Rummy Cube. Maybe I'll borrow it from a friend. Give it a shot, right? But being willing to try something new when you find yourself getting caught in routines that aren't too conducive to play. This could be in the physical bucket. Maybe you're going to join your neighbor for that walk she always asks you to go on. Or the more cognitive bucket, you're going to pick up the chessboard or the Rummy Cube or the crossword puzzle or whatever it is. What are some of the ways that play helps to stave off dementia? Yes. So especially from a cognitive realm here, this is the age old, age old adage, if you don't use it, you lose it, right? <laughs> so actually, the more cognitively engaged that you are, we find that your, your brain is constantly rewiring. Whenever you play and do these activities, BDNF is being released. These pathways are being reinforced. And these pathways can be very protective against various forms of dementia, such as Alzheimer's. So what are some ways that people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s can play? Oh, so many ways. So, I mean, we're, we're sitting here talking about the study that I'm referring to actually showed crossword puzzles. Um, people, individuals, as they got a little bit older, if they spent more time doing crossword puzzles, they were less likely to develop dementia as because they had this level of cognitive engagement. But the reality is, is just because you're 60, 70, or 80 doesn't mean your body stops working, right? You might be slower, but uh, we were at the bowling alley the other day and they had the seniors league <laughs> and the senior woman who held the highest record out bowled me by like 160 points. <laughs> 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 so it might not be pretty. It might not be fast, but you know, the credit belongs to the man in the arena, right? Face is yeah. marred with dust. Get out there and give it a shot. If you don't use it, you lose it. So both from a cognitive and physical perspective, there's lots of opportunities. Most of the time city bulletins will have, bowling leagues, outings, things like that, that you can join if you don't have something readily available within your family. So can listening to music be a form of play? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's very different from, I mean, if you're studying and it's some classical music in the background, that's one thing. But if you're sitting there and you are really focused on it and you find yourself even getting lost in the music, filling in the gaps, improvising a little bit along with it, that can very much so, as long as you're intentionally engaging with it and it's just not something in the background, that can very much so be a form of play. You, you had mentioned something that that I do and, and many people, I think many listeners do, is we a lot of times will want to watch TV at night. The mm -hmm. kids are in bed. Whew, okay, we're going to talk for a few <laughs> minutes and watch TV in the background. Is that play? Does that count? Hmm. So if we go back to the very beginning, I'm going to, I'm going to needle you a bit here, Andrew. Let's see. <laughs> She's good at that. <laughs> it's literally my job. It seems uh, like it shouldn't a little bit. It's, it seems like it's kind of the maybe cheap play or something. Well, okay. So play best understood or most correctly understood is an end in and of itself. Okay. Mm -hmm. Is TV an end in and of itself? Hmm. Mm, you're kind of doing it just to check out, right? Yeah. Um, it, like even you'll say the kids are in bed. I just want to, I just want to be able to check out. So the goal there is to disengage, not to intentionally engage, right? Mm -hmm. And so I would argue that those are two very, very different things. Um, so no, I don't think I don't think watching TV per se is necessarily a form of play. Now, if you are a movie buff or a producer and you're watching it, kind of like we talked about music, and you're watching it and you're like, did you see the wardrobe? And did you see the way they had the music come in? And look at the lighting. And you're being very engaged in what's going on. That could very much so be a form of play. But at the end of the day, kids are in bed. I need a half glass of wine and a little bit of friends in the background. We're probably towing the line of not really being considered play anymore. Uh, along the lines with screens, how about video games? Mm, good question. And um, if I had a nickel for every parent in the country who had a question about this, I'd be a very rich woman. So we are going to play video games. 
mom, can't we go play video games? The word play is very deceiving there. And I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Okay. Video games have their time in their place, but we need to realize that video games, much like gambling and slot machines, right? Are designed in our cell phones are designed very intentionally to be addicting. The, the frequency, the lights, the colors, the notifications, etc. So when you cross that line from, hey, I'm going to do this for 30 minutes very intentionally to I just lost seven hours of my day and I'm failing chemistry as a result. <laughs> those are two very different things, right? So it's all things in moderation, including moderation. You know, if you, if you finish finals and you want to binge on video games for the weekend, have at it. That's fine. But if you failed your classes and you didn't take your finals because you've binged on video games the entire week before, those are two very different things. So video games can be used as a form of play, even reciprocal play, right? The neighbors can hop on. You can play through the internet together. People can come and you can even in the same room sit next to each other and play together. They have a time and a place and they are not inherently bad. We just have to be very mindful. They are designed to be a slippery slope to where all of a sudden we're spending too much time and too much energy there. So it's just something that has to be moderated very, very closely. And oftentimes for kids who don't have that fully formed prefrontal cortex, that's where the parents come in. Hey, Billy, it's been an hour and a half, really time to turn that off now. And if you're finding that there's kids are struggling with emotional regulation after they turn off the video games or it's, you know, a knockdown drag out every time you say it's over, that's a sign that we probably cross the line from play into something slightly more dangerous. It might be time to pull back on that pretty significantly. Francie, is there something dangerous, maybe it's too strong a word, about people who take an aspect of play in their lives, say it's sports Um, music, theater, and they make that their work at which they earn money. Is there a danger in turning your play into your work, your way of earning a living? Sure. And it it depends. That danger doesn't apply to everyone. And I would say it doesn't even have to to formally be the way you earn your living. We hear this a lot in like really intense high school athletes. I just burned out on playing soccer, right? right? I couldn't do it anymore. So all things in moderation. Right. Um, and yeah, if you look at people over time, it, it stops being fun when all of a sudden paying the mortgage was dependent on it, etc. Right. So just because you're doing something and I think sports is probably the easiest way to conceptualize this because everyone's quote unquote playing when they when they play sports. But just like playing video games, that's not always the case. Right. It, it could be something much more reg- regimented, not an end in and of itself. So when money becomes involved or external outcomes, maybe it's the college scholarship, right? We have to just constantly be checking in and be very, very conscious of that. Is this still an end in and of itself or is the end something else? Paying the mortgage, getting the college scholarship, et cetera. And it's okay if there is another end involved, but we need to recognize that sometimes that's not always going to, it's not every day is going to be flow and every day is going to be fun and play there's going to then be a very different dynamic built in there. And I think people become really burned out and frustrated when they say, hey, I used to play soccer for fun and I used to love everything about it. Then I wanted to get this college scholarship and now I'm doing it for different reasons and I'm not getting that same level of enjoyment. Well, you're not getting the same level of enjoyment because it's not an end in and of itself anymore. So you can't necessarily expect that same level of enjoyment at all times. So you need to adjust expectation, but to go all the way to the other end of the spectrum where there's no enjoyment whatsoever is, is a recipe for something that you probably just don't want to move forward with because that's not how we're called to live our lives. So what we want to do is the exact opposite of that, right? We don't want to ruin our play. We want to you know, make our work play, right? Mm-hmm. Bring our play to work. How do we do that? You know, how, what, what could I do different tomorrow to make my work a little bit more playful? Yeah. Good question. And I'm just, all I can think about is we've talked about work and play, work and play is a surgeon and all of their patients listening to this going, Oh my God, I don't want my surgeon playing. <laughs> Not while they're operating on me. <laughs> right? So we need to be very intentional about how we understand this because play can come into work in a lot of ways. Very simply, how are we existing with each other? Are we celebrating people's birthday? And I don't mean bringing in donuts. I mean, are you getting up and Tom, are you singing off key your happy birthday solo to kind of bring some joy to the room, right? That's That's a great idea. (laughs) Or are we just saying, hey, it's Miriam's birthday. Everyone signed this card. We're going to give it to her. Two very different things. Neither of them involve the actual act of whatever surgery you're going to be doing that day. But how are we showing up with our colleagues in that environment? Are we willing to do new things? Are we willing to be a little bit silly in a time and place and space that's appropriate and safe 
for our patients. Um, one of my favorite things, I actually had someone that I, I worked with through residency, loved being active and it was always, I'll race you to the top of the stairs. There was eight <laughs> floors at our hospital. So we would walk into the patient's room like, <gasps> and then the patient's always like, what happened? And all of a sudden the room just has this lightness about it, right? And so look, at the end of the day in medicine, there are things that are very serious and have to be done very intentionally and very thoughtfully. Does that mean that that activity itself can't be fun? Right. We are recording a podcast right now about very important medical and scientific information. <laughs> yes. We've We've had fun doing it. Right? right. We can integrate this as we go. Um, so I think there's lots of different ways it can be built in. You know, when you're trying to reconnect those two arteries that are a little bit tenuous and bleeding out, that might not be the moment to burst out into song. <laughs> so use your prudential judgment. But there's lots. There are so many times and places throughout everyone's day, whether you're racing up the stairs, singing happy birthday, joking around with a patient, right? You can talk to them about their serious medical conditions and still also make a joke about how really terrible the hospital food is or whatever it might be. <laughs> We're all eating the same food at the end of the day. So I think there's a lot of ways to integrate it and how you choose to do that is really time and place dependent. But I encourage you to do it because time flies when you're having fun and we have better outcomes. We have more joyful careers. And at the end of the day, that's what we're called to do, right? To use our talents to bring joy and light to the world. A lot of our listeners are students. How can they make learning more playful? <laughs> I'm just envisioning someone banging their head on the on the table <laughs> as they're studying for step one. Um, Specifically, <laughs> organic chemistry. <laughs> oh oh, Those little uh, molecule kits. <laughs> that's actually the empty set. That's not possible, Andrew. Anyway. <laughs> So there's a lot of different ways to do this. It varies from individual to individual, but study groups exist for a reason, right? How many times were you, as you were going through training, being like, I was so burned out. And then I got together with some friends in the basement and you find like two and a half hours in, you become a little bit delirious. You guys are like laughing, you're or crying, you're laughing so hard. And you have all these inside jokes about gram positive bacteria all of a sudden. <laughs> like things got, things got weird. Um, so working in groups can be one way that, that creates this more organically. Um, but there's a lot of a, a lot of ways to do this even on your own, right? Flashcards, for example. How many times have you, have you, when you were studying, created a game against yourself? Okay, I have two minutes. How many of these can I make it through? Um, different ways in that regard. Sketchy Medical is something actually founded by UCI alum. Whoop, whoop. We got a, a shout out to Mayo and a shout out to UCI now. Well done. Um, <laughs> but there's actually robust evidence showing that the form of learning that's involved with kind of storytelling and picture creating is a really effective way to solidify memory. And so Sketchy Medical is a platform. It started um, with microbiology and has expanded from there. But essentially, they'll create, they'll draw a picture in real time and tell you you know, okay, so this is a gram positive bacteria. So we're going to color the sky this color to represent that. And all of a sudden this maiden is coming in and this guy has to save her. And all of these things are happening. It's a really ridiculous story. But at the end of the day, you're looking at your test and you go, oh, oh, lactobacillus. I know this one, right? And this whole picture comes back into your head and you're like, it was the maiden and it was purple and it was this. And all of these facts are right there because a story was created around it. This more playful form of learning than just reading a textbook. So you can challenge yourself individually with flashcards and little games you come up with. The mode of learning itself can be more playful, storytelling, pictures, et cetera, or honestly, good old fashioned getting together in groups and having that relationship with others where you have a little bit of fun, you challenge each other, that can naturally lead to a more conducive learning environment as well. You know, one of the things, Francie, we talk about frequently with sleep is a sleep deficit. Mm -hmm. uh, is there such thing as a play deficit? Can we tell if, if we have one? How do we fix that? <laughs> yes. And again, a very type A way to ask that question. <laughs> I wrote the question. Andrew's not the type A here. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. I need to know, how do I quantify my play deficit? And then I need to go play. I need 10 units of play. And am I doing it for its own sake? <laughs> no, but you're my people, friend, so you understand me. <laughs> I'm the exact same way. I totally get it. Um, so yes, there is such a thing as a play deficit. And this is where within the literature, if you look at how it's studied over time, they'll take an average for a population based off age, 
socioeconomic status, demographic, sex, et cetera, and say, what is the average amount of play? And then where are other individuals and what are their outcomes? And then they'll look at it that way. But the reality is, is that if you're significantly below the quote unquote average amount of play for your age um, or gender, then yeah, you are at a play deficit. And those are the studies that looked at individuals with play deficits were more likely to have run-ins with the criminal justice system, right? And so will you be able to retrospectively go back and quantify your play deficit? Probably not. Sorry, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to quantify. I just want to know how to get enough. (laughs) Um, But the reality is, is we can almost always, unless you're playing too much, which is probably not the the main problem we're encountering with this demographic that's listening to this group, we can almost always be playing more. And it's healthy. It's important. It allows us to think more creatively. It allows us to engage in our careers more longitudinally. So yes, there is such a thing as a play deficit. What do we do about it if we think that we have it? Well, I would challenge you to actually take a play history of yourself and or a loved one. Think back at times in your life where you just loved a certain activity. I was a lacrosse player in college and I was obsessed with wall ball, which is where you literally just stand in front of a wall and throw the wall, the ball back and forth and it, it's in your stick. I would go for hours. Oh, I, I, I got a hundred in a row. Can I get 200 or 300, right? And I so vividly, when I think of play activities I've gotten lost in, wall ball comes to mind, right? <laughs> and so, okay, I'm probably not gonna necessarily go out and play wall ball, but I know that I like these self-challenging activities. So for example, if you're someone who likes that physical component, you know, there's lots of different modes of exercise. Now the Peloton comes to mind, right? I came in, in the top 10% of this specific ride. Can I come in in the next, the top 5% next time? Or, you know, I, I, I had this amount of output. If I want to keep it within myself, could I have a greater amount of output next time I go on that ride? So looking back on yourself, what has motivated you in the past? Is it internal comparison, comparison with others? Group performance. Does comparison remove it from the realm of play? Then are you doing it for another end? Oh, that's a very good question. And it depends because the question is, what is the goal of that comparison? Is the goal because I want to get a college scholarship, so I have to be one of the top three performers in the country? That's very... I hopped off my Peloton this morning and I was in the top 10% and I was feeling pretty good. The other people that were in the bottom 90% below me had no idea. And the people, the 90% (laughs) ahead of me also had no idea. It was just my own internal metric that I was using, right? I wanted to know that I could do a little bit better than I did last time, right? So I, to me, that's still an end in and of itself. We can, we can argue the gray space of if we're using statistics and metrics, et cetera, et cetera. But I find oftentimes for type A individuals who like the numbers, even if it's, can I get my heart rate 10, 10% higher or something like that? It, it could be helpful. But look back in the past, see how you engaged with play, what resonated with you, and try to find a creative way to adapt that to the present. Francie, this has been outstanding. I think our fr- listeners are going to love this. We can't wait to have you back on again. Thanks for being with us on Dr. Doctor. And we're back after that very fun and playful interview with a playful <laughs> trivia question. Less playful, but it is about play. Right, Tom? Yes, Actually, let's I see really, how many times we can work play into this outro. Yes. <laughs> I've got to say, I like this trivia question because it gets at something that I would not have thought about. And I say, gee whiz, I'm sure happy I know this now. Yes, category, caloric input and output in children's sports. So a study in 2020 looked at those kids that we drop off at the soccer field or other game, and we are supposed to bring snacks, which often include juice boxes and other things that you squeeze out of this long plastic tube. So the question is, on average, in looking at this study that was published in 2020, do kids' activities burn more calories or consume more calories in their snacks? And in this study, they looked at four different sports, over 189 children. The average energy expenditure was 170 calories per game. Guess how many calories they consumed in the parents' snacks? Yes. More than that. More than that. 213 calories. So they were consuming more calories than they were burning through children's sports. And therefore, it was not contributing to a healthier body mass index. There you have it. Yeah, it, it is a little bit ironic. And of course, I know Bobby's soccer game might be different because they all run really fast. But on the whole, <laughs> that is pretty incredible because you think you you don't even think anything of the after after sports snack, but especially with childhood obesity. I mean, that's something to think about. 
top three takeaways, Andrew. Number one, play is important at all ages. And as one of my goals in life is to stay out of jail, uh, it will help you stay out of jail. That's and a high so, bar, Andrew. <laughs> it is, you know. Well, that's that's why I'm always satisfied, you know. But you want to stay out of jail, you've got to play at all ages. And number two, I'd say that work can be play. As, as Francie highlighted, it has to be something that's done in of itself for its own benefit. But find little ways to make your day joyful by playing games as appropriate in your work. And then I'd say number three, kind of kind of uh, one of my insights, my family's really improved in our family play uh, by the practice of really taking Sunday seriously. And uh, as somebody turned into a verb, um, Sabbathing, uh, where oh, yes, yes. you intentionally do nothing productive whatsoever. That is verboten. And the time is there to, as, as the Pope has said in the past, waste time with your family. And really, when you have those kind of boundaries on there, you're not going to do anything productive. You get to do lots of fun stuff that you would never otherwise make time for. And so it fills your play deficit and fulfills the commandment as well. I remember uh, almost about nine or 10 months into COVID, you know, Sunday afternoons, home with uh, just a, a couple kids and my wife, they said, what do you want to do, Dad? And I, I jokingly say, let's play Twister. Well, after nine months, they finally got it out and we did it. We've only done it once, but it was a hilarious, uh, playful experience. You, so I'm even looking to, for Rummy Cube. I think but, you would enjoy it, Tom. It's a good thanks, one. Thanks, Andrew. Hey, and thank you for listening to our playful episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of our show with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And you can also find all of our old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. For those of you who want to dive deeper into some of the topics, check out our website for bonus links and information from our latest post. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.